Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we've been chatting, uh, I guess, quite a bit about time travel recently on the show. Uh, first, probably in our, our Weird House Cinema episode about the 1979 movie Time After Time. And then more recently during our chat with Daniel Whiteson about astrophysics and time travel. And also a little talk about uh, time travel science fiction as well. That's right. Uh, one of the main takeaways was that Daniel is, is pretty thoroughly against the idea of the plausibility of uh, changing the past. Right. <laughs> But, um, you know, I think one of the more interesting questions to, to come back to in this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind is, um, is not just thinking about, okay, is this possible? And what would, you know, what assumptions would we have to make about the universe for this sort of time travel to work or this sort of time travel? What sorts of time travel are we engaging in all the time? Uh, instead of asking, is this possible? Are we doing it? To instead look at the question, what does this idea reveal about human perspectives of time? Where does the, the time travel idea even come from? And, and how far back in time do we see humans engaging in this sort of um, imaginative thought? It's a great question, and immediately all kinds of uh, uh, secondary questions come to mind, like, uh, okay, so time travel is one of the most popular plot devices of modern fiction, but... Can you? How far back can you think of uh, literature and stories that feature time travel? Suddenly, if, if you go just more than a few hundred years back, uh, examples start getting very sparse. At least, uh, you know the kind of things you can think of off the top of your head, and it might start to cause you to wonder: like, did something change in in recent centuries that? made this idea more more tangible to people and are there earlier examples and and what would what could we learn about our conception of time by looking at those yeah like ask yourself the question what's your favorite ancient myth about time travel and <laughs> and it's possible you have an answer because we will come back to to a few possible answers but for for many of you out there you might just be a bit dumbfounded and you might say well you know uh, you know, there are these mythic figures and they're they're traveling all over the place and they're doing all sorts of amazing things, things that are so outrageous you wouldn't even see it in a comic book today. Um, but traveling through time uh, becomes something of a scarcity. So it, it leads you to wonder, yeah, is, is time travel just this relatively recent cultural invention, this idea of time travel? Um, and, and why would that be? Because, you know, as, as we try to drive home on the show, you know, humans of centuries and millennia past were deep thinkers. They were deep dreamers. And yet there are, there are not, for the most part, uh, you know, large uh, caches of old folk tales about princes going back in time to rescue princesses or traveling into the future and so forth. Um, there are no tales of gods skipping around in different ages of the universe. So obviously time is an undeniable fact of our uh, of our physical reality but I was trying to think about like how is it that humans first put together a concept of time a time as a kind of substance that they could talk about and and manipulate with uh and sort of you know turn around and look at within the mind and uh so uh so one really interesting source I came across addressing this is a section in a book called The Unfolding of Language, an Evolutionary Tour of Mankind's Greatest Invention. This is by an author named Guy Deutscher. Uh, this book was published by Macmillan in 2005. Deutscher is an academic linguist. Uh, he used to be affiliated with Cambridge and with the University of Leiden. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if he has any uh, uh, affiliations now. But uh, shout out quickly that I came to this connection to Guy Deutscher's work uh, by way of a mention in a live science article by Adam Mann, which actually pointed me in the direction of, of two very interesting sources. So, so good on that article. But uh, the reason I wanted to talk about this book uh, by, by Guy Deutscher here is that it addresses what we can learn from metaphors in everyday speech about the way our minds work. And so the entry point here is that uh, he's talking about uh, the contrast between poetic metaphors, metaphors that arouse a sense of strangeness and wonder, and utterly mundane metaphors. Uh, so a couple of examples we can compare. Uh, imagine you are reading a poem and you come across the line, tread softly because you tread on my dreams. This is a famous passage from mm -hmm. a poem by William Butler Yeats. 
and there's a conceptual leap here that makes this image of treading upon dreams striking. You're asked to imagine physically stepping on a purely mental construct without physical form. And I think it's that gap. It's like exactly to the degree that it doesn't quite fit. And yet you can still understand what it means that makes the metaphor striking. Yeah. Now I'm just imagining his dreams as just a big old snack, a big yellow <laughs> snack on the ground and uh-huh. you no know, step on snack. Uh, but I'm sure that's not what, uh, what the, the poet originally intended. My dreams are rattling and hissing and bearing fangs. <laughs> Venom is dripping from the fangs of my dreams. Uh, but so anyway, so yeah, is, uh, this is a good poetic metaphor and it strikes us as poetic. It's, it's like strange. It, it makes us have that feeling of awe you get when you read a, when you read a good poem. Uh, but then uh, Deutscher contrasts that with reading a news article about a senator proposing tough legislation to fight crime. Now, this is not a striking metaphor. It's utterly mundane. And yet, if you stop to think about it, the concept of tough legislation is just as much of a leap as treading on dreams. Like Here you're saying that this intangible sort of social thing, a law, has the quality of a physical material, like it would be difficult to cut or chew. Mm-hmm. And so why do these phrases feel so different? Well, Deutscher argues that it's mostly because of familiarity. Tough legislation uses a familiar, even cliched, metaphorical understanding of toughness. So it's not surprising or striking in the way that treading on dreams is. And he notes that metaphors that are so familiar that they've lost their vitality and they no longer strike us as poetic are sometimes referred to as dead metaphors, which I think uh, the irony there, maybe not irony, the, the interesting thing is that's a literary cliche, dead metaphors invoking a biological metaphor to describe the effects of words and phrases. Mm. Oh, one that comes to mind instantly, perhaps because we're talking about time, is the idea of killing time. You hear uh-huh. that all the time, but it, it it doesn't really do anything. Like it doesn't, I feel like the, the phrase killing time does not really summon any kind of novel image in my mind. It doesn't make me think about time as an organism or time as the body or anything. It's just this dumb thing people say. Uh, but th- I think actually killing time would be an incredibly striking metaphor if you'd never heard that before and you just came across it in a poem. Yeah, know? the first person who said it was probably a genius. Yeah. Imagining time as a little creature that's being bludgeoned to death by your, I don't know, by your you scrolling your phone. Mm-hmm. But then jumping off this point, he goes on to make what I think is a really interesting point. So I just want to read from, from Deutscher's book here. But there is more familiarity than individual acquaintance. For most metaphors in ordinary language are also familiar on a much deeper level. Suppose, for instance, that during an election campaign, you read in a newspaper that, quote, Critics derided the new election manifesto as nothing more than a souffle of promises. This phrase is clearly metaphorical, since by anyone's standards, a souffle is is properly made of egg whites, not promises. Mm -hmm. But although you may never have heard this particular metaphor before, it is still unlikely to strike you as a great poetic coup or as something entirely out of the ordinary. The reason must be that souffle of promises belongs to a larger context, which is familiar. And uh, so this is because, Deutscher argues, quite strangely, metaphors based in food, eating, and cooking are very commonly used to describe mental phenomena, such as ideas, thoughts, and emotions. And then he goes on to just give a, a huge laundry list of examples. You can think of anger simmering, resentment boiling, or uh, uh, Johnny is chewing over a new concept. You need time to digest this information. Uh, you know, the people won't swallow these lies. Or Are you just going to lap up that pablum from those politicians? People devour books and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, he says we can have sweet dreams, bitter hatred, sour relations, half-baked ideas, and just goes on and on. Once you notice it, it, it's astonishing how much of the way we talk about feelings and ideas is based in food. Hmm, yeah. And, and of course, all the, mo- I think most of these examples we've been rolling through here, or a number of them anyway, have distinct ties to Western cuisine. So, mm-hmm. which of course, you know, we can easily imagine that in, in various other uh, international cuisines and in other languages, you have the same thing going on. 
Uh, yeah, totally, totally. And in fact, I think we, we've even talked about this to some extent on the show before, like uh, metaphors, uh, you know, sort of mental content metaphors based in food that are common in other cultures, not so much in, in English speaking ones. I do wonder, though, if the souffle of promises is not lost on folks who haven't themselves made or attempted to make uh, a souffle. Because it seems to me like part of it is the idea that, yes, it's, it's, it's a, a laborious process to make, and then it, defla- it can easily deflate. Um, right. It's kind of an empty dish in, in some regard. The, even though it looks fantastic, it is mostly air. And it if you collapses. don't realize that, yeah. then, uh, then maybe something of the metaphor is lost. You know, honestly, I did not even consciously make that connection. Maybe unconsciously I did, but you've opened my mind to a new uh, new dimension of the souffle. Well, you, you maybe you're too familiar with the souffle and you take it for like me. I, I rarely make souffle. And when I do, I am intimidated by the process because I, I know what is involved and what is what is possible. Like I don't trust myself enough. Uh, so I'm ever on guard. You are right to fear it. <laughs> But anyway, uh, to pick back up with uh, Deutscher, so he summarizes what he's just been talking about by saying, quote, there is a well-established link in our mind between the two domains, which unites all the individual images into a broader conceptual metaphor. Ideas are food. And thus, when we hear a phrase like souffle of promises, the image does not sound so surprising because it fits neatly into this familiar frame. And so for Deutscher, this is an example of conceptual metaphors, the, the quote, mappings of one domain onto another. Uh, and so uh, I, I, for some reason, maybe it might be interesting to speculate on what that reason would be. It's just very easy for us to think about the domain of thoughts and feelings in terms of the domain of food. But this isn't the only conceptual mapping like this. And here is where we get back to time. Deutscher makes the case that there is a similar natural metaphorical domain overlap between time and space. Now, on one hand, you might think, well, that totally makes sense because you, a 21st century person who is uh, somewhat literate in the sciences, you know that space and time are actually linked in modern physics. But the point is that these conventions of language long predate Einstein or any knowledge of general relativity or the concept of space-time. Since prehistory, there is clear evidence in language itself that humans have naturally tended to think and talk about time as if time were a type of space or as if the rules of space applied to it. So once again, Deutscher gives a ton of examples. He writes, quote, Consider some of the simplest words we use to describe spatial relations. Prepositions such as in, at, by, from, to, behind, within, and through. Uh, and then he gives a ton of examples within actual phrases. So the idea of like, from London to Paris, you can compare to from Monday to Friday, or in England, the same way you would say in January or in the 16th century. Uh, you can stand at the door or you can arrive at noon. All these prepositions, he's uh, saying, a flow originally from the uh, linguistic domain of space and come to be applied to time. Uh, and beyond this, he argues that this is not just a quirk of English. This is true of literally every language that has ever been studied. There are no exceptions. Every language on Earth talks about time as if it were a type of space, which suggests something, uh, if that's true, suggests something very ancient and powerful about that link in our consciousness. I'm reminded of um, a part of Barry Lopez's book, Arctic Dreams, where he's talking about this um, conversation between an Arctic, Arctic explorer and uh, an Inuit, uh, and uh, the Inuit man has has asked if this pair of binoculars allows him to see into tomorrow, and um, and in this particular instance, you know, it, there's a certain amount of uh, you know perhaps you know, a lot of it's about the languages here, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, uh, but but it, it kind of gets at this idea too of in a place where you have wide open spaces. And, uh, and and you know a fair amount of moving around and resources are spread out like you know what the individual is asking like will these binoculars allow me to see something that I would not be able to reach until tomorrow and uh, that's always just stuck stuck with me because it it gets into this it it, it touches on the spatial idea of of time but also within a realm that uh, in a a geography that at least for many of us, you know, it makes it a little easier to comprehend that firm connection. Like tomorrow is not only um, 
you know, something that will happen to me. It is also it is also a place I will be because I know where I can see potentially see where I will be tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And I, I think that's a fantastic point that actually connects to something else I wanted to talk about, which is um, the idea that. OK, so the metaphorical overlap between space and time appears to only flow in one direction. You, you might find a stray counterexample somewhere, uh, but generally the idea is that our human languages take concepts and metaphors that begin as descriptions of space and then apply them to time, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the the present as if it were spatially here, and we visualize the past as if it were physically behind us. And like, if you stop to think about the physicality, even the biology of that, the past we imagine usually as in the direction of our butts, you know, behind us. The future <laughs> is physically in front of us. And this is one of those great things that, like, it's so mundane that you don't stop to notice it. But when you pay attention to that, I suspect it's like this and not the other way around. You know, it's not that we imagine the future as behind us and the past in front of us because of totally contingent facts about how our bodies move. If you're walking in a straight line, the area in front of you is space that you will occupy in the future and the space behind you is the place you occupied in the past. And so you can think about alternative biology, different body morphology leading to different conceptions of time. Like if crabs evolved mm. to possess abstract intelligence as language, I kind of suspect they might visualize the past and future to the left and right since they often walk sideways instead of forwards and backwards. And the now is simply the eat, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> It also makes you think about um, uh, the, the way you know eyes are positioned on different organisms. Uh, yeah. Thinking about, say, herbivores, uh, whose whose eyes are often positioned more on the sides of the head in a way to provide more panoramic uh, view of what's happening, so they can have a, a, a better idea of where the predators are coming in. Versus the uh, the eyesight of a predator uh, that is more about what is directly in front of me, what is the thing I am after. Right. Yeah. So that makes me wonder if our conception of time is also influenced by our heads being shaped more like carnivore heads. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to wrap up this section about uh, Guy Deutscher's book, uh, I just want to read one more thing. He says, quote, this link between space and time is so entrenched in our cognition that it is extremely difficult to extricate ourselves from it and appreciate that time cannot literally be long or short, unlike sticks or pieces of string, nor can time literally pass, unlike a train. Time cannot go forwards and backwards any more than it goes sideways, diagonally, or downwards. Time doesn't actually go anywhere at all. Uh, And I think this is a great point. The link in our language is so deep, it's difficult even to talk about it, because we don't really have any language for time that is not a metaphor based on space, except maybe in pure mathematical expressions. Yeah, we have this, yeah, like you say, we have this just entire suite, multiple suites of, uh, of terms we use to talk about time. And yet very often we're, uh, we're at a lack to, to really define time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly it, it's hard to just to really settle in on a definition of what it is. One that I often come back to is the idea of time is the, the rate of change in the universe. And if you if you stop yourself right. in all of, <laughs> yeah if you stop yourself in all of this and start like asking questions about time travel in that like the, in, in in regards to the rate of change in the universe things get silly really quickly you know it's like um, like well, what is time it's the rate of change in the universe well can I can I do that backwards can I do that in reverse uh, can I like travel back like it's like asking is this like, it's like saying you know what I really like wet I would like to travel to wet. What do you mean you would like to travel to wet? You want to travel to somewhere that is wet um, uh, because you can't just travel to wet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, th- th- that's a great metaphor. And even then, I mean, it makes you wonder, okay, so I, on one hand, I think the rate of change in the universe is a good way of trying to describe what time is. But does the does the idea of rate not itself in a way kind of assume time? Like it's mm-hmm. just – yeah, there's it's you can't get under it, right? It it is in in itself. It's also an imperfect definition. Um, but I guess the reason I come back to it is that it is significantly different from this. A lot of these metaphors that we end up using. So it kind of it kind of throws a, a wrench into your 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 cognitive process. You know, totally. 
Oh, and I guess one last thing. This isn't strictly about time, but I just thought I would mention it because I thought it was interesting. Uh, Deutscher actually does go beyond this. So he, he goes from talking about how metaphors of space are applied to time, but then they, they keep being applied to even deeper levels of uh, of other concepts and language. Uh, so he makes this argument about how, uh, about how concepts of space flow in, through metaphorical use to time – and then from time to causes or reasons and all these other things. So you have something, you have a, a preposition like from, which originally describes space. So you could be from Tucson, Arizona, and then that can be applied to time. So you can remember something from last Tuesday, and then that can be applied to causes or reasons for things. So uh, the example he gives is he shivers from the cold. Mm. Anyway, I, I love stuff like this because there, there's so much that's fascinating about the way that we use language. Uh, I guess it's fascinating to me because we all do it and we do it all the time and we don't notice we're doing it. So just being asked to stop and observe the words you're using and what that reveals about how you think is uh, is often extremely eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, in this, this linear view of things, it, it falls into – Everything, like even as we talk about ideas, you know, we're, we're building things out of sentences. We're talking about uh, forming an idea out of this and uh, building up to this idea, uh, arriving at this conclusion, and so mm. forth. Yeah. Uh, as I was thinking about all this, I, I started thinking about some of the terms used by Mercha Eliade. Um, uh, who, uh, in, 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 uh, in his work, you often have this, this separation of time into mythic time and profane time. So mythic time is when gods and heroes experience their victories, defeats, and their dramas. You know, it's the time of, of mythic uh, uh, stories playing out um, mm. during, during which these, these various exploits shaped the earth, shaped our culture. But then during profane time, Nothing that we do has any value except to the extent that it recreates or in some way connects us with events that occurred during mythic time. Right. So uh, Eliade was a was a scholar of religion. And, and yeah, I understand this was one of his main points. It was that a lot of what we think of as religion either is or uh, is derived from attempts to recreate or reenact uh, uh, things that allegedly took place in this other mythic time. Right. And of course, uh, this connection that he's talking about between mythic past and profane present, uh, you know, it's not quite like a physical journey, uh, you know, via time machine between two times. Though, though I suppose characters who venture into a realm of gods or spirits is, in some way, they are making a journey into mythic time, a, a realm where mythic time is either still going on or perhaps is, has just happened or is in, in some way, you know, more present. Um, you know, again, it's not nothing like these modern ideas of time travel, but um, uh, but it certainly got me thinking about all of this. Oh, absolutely. And to stay on the subject of myth and religion, I mean, one thing that I think is kind of interesting in understanding how humans imagine time throughout history is uh, so, sort of the difference between myth and legend as generally understood by, mm -hmm. by scholars of religion, where uh, the idea is that myth is a story that takes place – uh, you know, often telling some kind of origin of something, but it's also a story that takes place usually in a time that is somehow removed from your right. own timeline, whereas legend is something that appears to blur into your own your own actual history. Uh, so they might both be stories that are not like literal descriptions of things that took place in the past, but myth, it's kind of like it would be hard to say when the myth actually took place, whereas you could say a legend is about something that allegedly happened a thousand years ago. Right. So like a legendary king, a legendary emperor is in many cases the sort of individual that uh, historians and archaeologists can look to and say, like, well, who is the actual person that this may be based upon? Whereas when you get into the mythic, mythic kings, mythic emperors, uh, these are figures that are often uh, you know, indecipherable from gods. Not to say that they don't, uh, there's not a potential for some connection to actual living humans, but uh, in many cases, yeah, it is about the, the things that occurred before, the, uh, the stories that define the world uh, that in which we live. 
I think it's interesting that there are different ways to imagine the past, whether or not what you're imagining is is accurate or not. I mean, that's sort of beside the point right now. Just like if you're imagining what happened long ago, uh, there are sort of different timelines. You know, is there there's a past that's kind of inaccessible to us, and mm-hmm. then a past that you can at least imagine as being accessible, even if you don't think you could say travel back to it. And I think in a way that has sort of changed maybe in in 20th century science fiction, at least, where one thing that seems true, maybe you can disagree, Rob, about 20th century science fiction is that uh, this imagines there's a leveling effect where, okay, no, now there's just, there's a timeline. And if you have a time machine, you can go back to anything forward or backward that actually happened or will actually happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it reminds me of um, you know something else that, that Iliade was was big on this idea of um, archaic cultures accessing circular sacred time, uh, a time of origins and creations, while modern cultures use a linear sacred time that is essentially bolted onto the timeline of profane time. Um, but but in all of the, the you know the origin of things was important. Uh, so like just thinking again about mythic time, it. In some ways, it feels like, well, the mythic time is more real, like it's more of a real place than, uh, you know, whatever happened last year was. Whatever happened last year wasn't important at all, uh, at least uh, aside from any ways in which it recreated mythic time. Um, and so I was, I was thinking about like, well, 20th century ideas of all of this. Um, and it made me made me think about well some of our our time travel stories our modern time travel stories and I started thinking about Back to the Future uh, which uh, I, I don't know where this falls in your introduction to time travel Joe but I I have a feeling that either Back to the Future or um, the old uh, adaptation like the nineteen what fifties or sixties adaptation of the Time Machine one of those was my first introduction to the idea of time travel. And it was it was probably Back to the Future. Oh yeah, I can't say for sure, but Back to the Future's got to be up there for me. Uh, it, was, it was certainly one of the earliest, and it benefits from being the kind of movie that feels canonical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, e- even when you're a kid, I think you detect some kind of differences in the quality of cinema. Even at that age where I liked every movie I saw, there are some movies that feel kind of like okay, that's just some weird thing I saw on TV one time, and there are other movies that feel like a part of the canon of of culture. And and Back to the Future felt that way. Yeah, absolutely. And so it, it got me wondering, thinking back on it now, to what extent any time travel story is essentially taking a particular time in the past. Uh, obviously, we're just talking about time travel stories that concern the past. And establishing it as a kind of sacred time, uh, one that explains conditions in our profane uh, present time. And, um, you know, in terms of Back to the Future, uh, you know, this is, this is a story that, that doesn't just concern the mid-1950s. It idolizes the mid-1950s. It fetishizes the 1950s. Uh, it, it's, uh, this is a time of great admiration for this film, a period of, of iconic and highly sanitized American nostalgia. Um, and it is also the time that defines our characters. You know, this is the this is the age during which uh, Marty McFly's parents were themselves youths. This is the time uh, during which they would come together and eventually uh, create Marty McFly. Well, in another way, you could almost say that in Back to the Future, Marty McFly travels back to a cinematic 1950s more than a real 1950s. Like he's mm. traveling to a mythic time almost because yeah. it's like. Yeah, it's sort of what you're saying, because like the stuff he sees when he gets there are not so much based in history, but they're based on the images people remember from like movies and TV of the 1950s. So, you know, the soda shop with the counter and the, yeah. and the, the you know, all that kind of stuff. It is a mythic reality that explains the origins of things and, uh, and, 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 and provides this idea of how things should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about uh, Back to the Future in terms of, uh, of Iliade's writings. Uh, by the way, I had to do the math on this because I always find this kind of thing um, interesting, but also um, um, alarming. You know, it makes me feel old to realize this. So this is a, a movie, Back to the Future, that concerned a jaunt from 1985 to 1955. If you were to take an identical jaunt today from the year 2021, that would take you back to the year 1991. That is the year that Highlander 2 came out. 
Christophe Lambert goes back 30 years, gives himself a pep talk, uh, <laughs> and, you know, like tells him how to stand up for himself, ends up with Lambert punching Sean Connery in the face. I, like, yeah, I can see it. 1991, also the year of Dan Aykroyd's Nothing But Trouble. Uh, oh. <laughs> a pivotal time, mythic time uh, uh, for uh, American culture there. Uh, also Cool as Ice, the Vanilla Ice movie. Ah, well, there you go. A time of, of heroes and gods. 1991, basically what we're saying, was a weird year for films. <laughs> it's, when you try to look for the real standouts, I mean, there are. You got stuff like Barton Fink going on. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, it's also the year of stuff like Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Oh, well, we did have a time travel uh, an, uh, movie there. We also had uh, Bill and Ted uh, came out, their bogus journey. That would be the second one. Right. Okay. Well, we got to stop this or we'll just keep going okay. the, the whole episode. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, just getting back to the basic point, mainstream time travel tropes um, are not that old. And we'll explore some examples of this shortly. Um, while time travel narratives are in some ways like other complex ways of thinking about the past and the present, they're not quite the same, but you can easily get into just a, a whole argument of like looking back at old things and old stories and saying, to what extent is this time travel? To what extent is it not? Because think about uh, a lot of modern time travel stories. What happens? You have Marty McFly. He goes back. What does he do? He meets his dad. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there, there are other tales of this sort, you know, where you're, it's about connecting with ancestors. And of course, communication and connection with ancestors is widespread in religion and myth and folklore, though these generally take on the form of spirit communication of some sort, not physical or even holographic journeys. Right. A lot of the time travel stories about interacting with ancestors are either there uh, to recall some of the language we used in our Weird House Cinema episode about time after time. They're often debugging history stories where you're mm -hmm. trying to go back and fix something that went wrong with one of your ancestors to make the present better uh, or to undo the mischief of another time traveler who screwed up the future by doing something with your ancestors. And sometimes there are some stories where they, you know, they try to maintain the consistent timeline by having a person go back and like do something with their ancestors that in turn was necessary for the present to happen the way it did. You know, the stories of paradoxes where somebody goes back and they become their own grandfather or something creepy. Yeah. Now for some answers uh, in all of this, I, I looked to a wonderful book it came out in 2001 by Paul J. Nayan, an electrical engineer and science author. It's called Time Travel, Time Machines, Time Travel in Physics, Metaphysics, and Science Fiction. All right. And it's a, it's a real fun, very readable book. You can still get copies of this. Uh, I think there have been a couple, at least a couple of editions that have come out over the years. Um, and uh, it, it deals with everything that's mentioned in the title, but probably focusing more here on just gleaning some of the sci-fi references from it. Because he does a great job about talking about uh, the different types of time travel narratives that we have and what are some of the earlier examples of them. Uh, and he identifies a sort of related precursor to tales of ventures into the future, um, as well as, I guess, into the past, in the form of stories and accounts of visions of the future. Mm. So back before 1895's The Time Machine by H.D. Uh, Wells, you had as early as 1856 uh, popular English language tales that speculated on the far future, such as an 1856 Harper's article that pondered what the year 3000 would be like. It was titled January 1st, A.D. 3000, and it was uh, apparently by an anonymous author, but I think it was at least edited by Alfred A. Uh, Guernsey. Uh, but uh, I'm not not exactly sure if uh, if an actual author has ever been attributed to this piece or if it remains just anonymous. I bet it was absolutely prophetic. <laughs> yeah, I had to look it up. I had, uh, Harper's Magazine still has it. I think it's in their archives, uh, so you have to be a subscriber. That's probably the best way to see it. I think I, I was able to find an excerpt of it in Google Books. Uh, it seems pretty farcical, so don't expect anything too sci-fi. Lots of pondering over what sorts of stupid things men of the far future will wear. There's some great illustrations from this, um, <laughs> this article. I included them here for you, Joe. <laughs> Everybody looks like uh, uh, like Scottish warrior dandies. Yes. And in a way, you know, I, I don't know. These aren't too far off the, uh, off the mark, I guess, you know. 
But, um, you know, it concerns the very sorts of time travel social commentary you might expect today, like when a time traveler is aghast to learn that individual freedom has been, um, uh, you know, has been um, uh, violated uh, by state-sanctioned diets. Uh, you cannot get your burgers in the future. Right, yeah, it's that, it's that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, which is not to say that you know, this art, you know, I don't mean to criticize this article, because again, this is the sort of thing that still goes on today, and mm. as one can imagine, it can be done well, and it can also be done, you know, uh, crudely or ineffectually. But um, uh, anyway, it is a, a noteworthy example. Now, weirdly, a major uh, 19th century example of multi-directional time travel uh, is uh, by Charles Dickens. You wouldn't have expected him to be one of the yeah. pioneers in this area. But we have it in the form of a Christmas carol, which you know, great story. Uh, we often miss some of the finer uh, social points of it, but it's a mm-hmm. it's a story that has become a part of Western holiday traditions. Like it's it's a narrative we put up there almost with the, you know the tales of Santa Claus and the the baby Jesus, uh, but it is essentially about time travel visions uh, you know i guess you can you can critique and say well it's happening within the context of a dream and i don't know to what extent he's actually being visited by spirits but i don't know i always think of them as actual spirits i think of these as actual visions that are brought to him by supernatural entities yeah sure i mean it's fiction you know <laughs> yeah so the spirits <laughs> are coming to him and uh yeah he's he gets to see the past uh the present and the future yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess the, the great thing about the story is you can think of it in different ways. It's like, mm-hmm. to what extent is Scrooge just simply having this this night of intense dreaming and, ref- and, and, and reflection and pondering about the future? He's engaging in mental time travel, which, uh, of course, is, a, is something that, 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 that humans have uh, uh, in general that allows us mm-hmm. to uh, form these simulations of the past that to varying degrees may be correct, uh, and then compare those to simulations of what the future might hold and, and uh, various simulations about how that future situation will affect us, how we'll respond, etc. cetera. Uh, so you could just say that, or you can go with a more fun idea that like actual beings from beyond the grave came and visited him and took him on journeys uh, you know, through, the, through, through the, the, the past and the present and the future. Right. And so while a lot of the modern sci-fi time travel, I think, is clearly traceable back to to H.G. Wells and the the stories he wrote in the 1890s and uh, mainly the novel, The The Time Machine in 1895, is that right? This goes back significantly earlier. A Christmas Carol came out in 1843. Yeah. Now, uh, you have even earlier stories that get closer to um, a whole trope we're, we're about to discuss. There's a Bulgarian tale from 1824 about a Russian hero who's swept overboard at sea, and he becomes wrapped in an herb known as the, uh, uh, as the root of life. And, uh, and then he comes to in the year 2824. I, uh, I love how some of many of these older time travel stories, they just go for it. They just go like a thousand years into the future. Yes. Um, you don't seem like you don't see as much of that, uh, in, and uh, I don't know many of the stories we you know we grow. I guess I fall back to the 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 pattern set by Back to the Future. Like, what are you looking at? You're traveling into the time of your parents, or you're traveling into the time of your children, which I think makes a lot of sense because that's a very human perspective, individual perspective level of time travel. That's the that's generally the spectrum that we're most concerned about, or should be, I guess, most concerned about. Is like, where do we come from, and what sort of world are we leaving for our children? I wonder if the tendency for uh, for time travel journeys to become more modest in scale, you know, people going a uh, hundred years into the future instead of a thousand, uh, if that happens in the twentieth century because of the increasing rate of cultural and technological change in the twentieth century, like people living in a time where things see, seem, at least, and I don't know if there's an objective way to measure this, but seem at least to be changing faster than ever. Did they start to think, well, like, I can't set this a thousand years in the future because, like, nothing will even be recognizable. I've got to, I've got to pull the pull the reins back a bit. Yeah, getting into the the concept of future shock, right? The idea yeah. that it just seems like things are moving at such a terrific level, uh, I can't possibly predict what it's going to be like 
in uh, you know in just ten years. Now, one of the interesting things here is, of course, that the concept of future shock—that uh, there could be almost this trauma and anxiety associated with the the rate of technological advancement. This didn't come about till 1970. This was uh, American futurist Alvin Toffler and his uh, spouse uh, Adelaide. Uh, they they uh, formulated this concept. So I don't know. It would be interesting to look at the sci-fi at sci-fi from the 1970s. Was was it? less uh, less um, likely to look at near future situations and more likely to uh, you know gaze into the far future you know sort of like you know, the early uh, earlier work of uh, Frank Herbert looking into the far future of humanity in dune because it seems like by the time we get into the 1980s you have far more of a tendency with sci-fi authors to look into an immediate future mm-hmm but I could be way off uh, off the, the bat there. I'm just probably uh, cherry-picking, thinking about various works from different decades that I'm familiar with. Well, we, we teased earlier the question of how far back in history the concept of time travel actually goes. It's clear, again, that a lot of modern time travel, I think, is largely traceable back to H.G. Wells and the time machine. Again, that's the 1890s. But there are ideas of time travel from before that, like we've been discussing. How far before that? So I was looking around for evidence of the the oldest stories of time travel in literature, and I came across an interesting claim uh, from a professor, actually, a professor at Georgia Tech named uh, Lisa Yazik, who is a professor of science fiction studies. Uh, so I was watching a video lecture that she did in 2020 about it. She actually wrote the uh, preface or introduction to a recent new edition of, of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And uh, she's done a lot of study about the history of uh, time travel stories. Uh, I actually connected her also uh, by a mention in that article by, uh, by Adam Mann in Live Science. But Yazik actually has a lot of uh, of interesting thoughts about time travel. She argues that it is not as modern a literary concept as we might assume. And in fact, some forms of time travel are as old as literature itself. Hmm. And so what would be the examples here? Well, she gives the example of the ancient Sanskrit epic, the Mahabharata, uh, which describes a form of time travel that Yazik calls time dilation. So this would be similar to... The, the type of time travel that is quite real, a confirmed part of modern physics uh, that we know from general relativity, where, say, if you are um, if you are near an object of great mass or if you are moving at great velocity, then relative to other objects in the universe, your experience of time will slow down. You will age more slowly as, as time sort of zips by in the broader context. But this story is not about physics. So uh, this story in the Mahabharata probably dates back to sometime in the first millennium BCE. Uh, and it is the story of a king named Raivata, who is also known as uh, Kakudmin, and his daughter Ravati. I actually found a good text of this story, though it is the version that's told not in the Mahabharata, but in the Vishnu Purana. And so this version is from the Vishnu Purana, and it's translated into English in the 19th century by Horace Heyman Wilson. So the story begins with this king, uh, Raivata, who is the eldest of a hundred brethren. And King Raivata has a surpassingly wonderful daughter named Ravati. And she is just awesome and lovely in every possible way. She's like the best princess ever. And in fact, Ravati is so great that Raivata doesn't know if there are really any men around who are worthy of her hand in marriage. So he gets an idea. He is going to consult the heavens. He will travel to the Brahma realm, the plane of existence where the god Brahma dwells, and he will consult with the great god. He will get the advice of Brahma. Uh, because if anybody should be able to find him a suitable match for Ravati, it should be Brahma. But when the two of them get there, Brahma is in the middle of listening to a concert. They're, they're a group of, uh, of divine singers who are, who are going through a song. And so Raivata and Ravati sit and wait patiently for the song to finish. And here I'm going to quote from the, the Wilson translation. At the end of their singing, Raivata prostrated himself before Brahma and explained his errand. Whom should you wish for a son-in-law, demanded Brahma, and the king mentioned to him various persons with whom he could be well pleased. 
Nodding his head gently and graciously smiling, Brahma said to him, Of those whom you have named, the third or fourth generation no longer survives, for many successions of ages have passed away whilst you were listening to our songsters. Now upon earth, the twenty-eighth great age of the present Manu is nearly finished, and the Kali period is at hand. You must therefore bestow this virgin gem upon some other husband, for you are now alone, and your friends, your ministers, servants, wife, kinsmen, armies, and treasures have long since been swept away by the hand of time. So, the issue here is that time flows at a different rate on Earth than it does in the Brahma realm. It's as if the Brahma realm were like near a supermassive black hole. So, while the two mortals were sitting here listening to this song, presumably the song's only a few minutes long, millions of years have passed on Earth, and everybody they ever knew or knew of is dead. Wow. Fortunately, there are some immortal gods still around, and so there is a semi-happy ending for Ravati, uh, because at the end, she gets to uh, she gets paired up with one of the avatars of the god Vishnu, who is quite worthy of her hand in marriage, of course, because he's Vishnu. And then there's a long section of the story in the uh, the Vishnu Purana version that is just a monologue on the nature of Vishnu, who, interestingly is in places described sort of like a manifestation of time itself. So I just want to read some some parts of this monologue, not the whole thing. Quote, The being of whose commencement, course, and termination we are ignorant, the unborn and omnipresent essence of all things, he whose real and infinite nature and essence we do not know, is the supreme Vishnu. He is time, made up of moments and hours and years, whose influence is the source of perpetual change. He is the universal form of all things, from birth to death. He is eternal, without name or shape. And then skipping ahead a bit. He is at once the creator and that which is created, the preserver and that which is preserved, the destroyer and, as one with all things, that which is destroyed. And, as the indestructible, he is distinct from these three vicissitudes. In him is the world, he is the world, and he, the primeval self-born, is again present in the world. Wow, yeah, that, that reminds me of uh, some translations uh, uh, of, uh, of the Gita. They, uh, they, 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 they translate the words of Vishnu as, as I am time grown old, uh, which I always Ooh, like. That, that, yeah, that gives me chills. Now, there's another interesting thing that gets mentioned in this story, which is that though, though there are some very important differences between this myth and the dystopian sci-fi stories of the modern era, Rivada and Ravati do return to a future Earth that could be called dystopian, or at least worse off than the one they left. Uh, I don't know if this has to do – it might have to do with um, – what Brahma says about uh, the earth being on the verge of the Kali age. Mm -hmm. But we are told, quote, being thus instructed by the lotus born divinity, Rivada returned with his daughter to earth, where he found the race of men dwindled in stature, reduced in vigor, and enfeebled in intellect. So they come back and people are like worse than when they left. Mm -hmm. Things have gone downhill. And uh, so I want to be clear that the kind of dystopian future described by H.G. Wells in The Time Machine is, I believe, understood as a contingent consequence of bad social and political trends within linear time. So I I think the important point that Wells is, is trying to make is that if we, say, continue tolerating a society in which the rich relentlessly exploit the labor of the poor, here's what you're going to get. You know, you're Mm going to get Eloi and and Morlocks. Um, I don't get that kind of implication in this ancient Indian epic. It it would be good to hear from listeners with more knowledge about uh, ancient Hindu thought, but I think this story about uh, uh, Raivata and uh, Ravati is more consistent with a vision of a kind of cyclical mythic time in which there there are ages of human advancement and then ages of human retreat. And it's just that they happen to pop out of the Brahma realm in one of the bad times. Yeah, that's that's my understanding as well. And of course, this this view of time uh, matches uh, matches up very, very loosely with uh, with some of the ideas you see in um, – 
uh, in various Native American tribal cultures and in Mesoamerican cultures where it's a procession of different ages and catastrophes. And mm. we find ourselves in yet another age, and there will be another catastrophe, but then there will be another age beyond that. Now, of course, this raises the question. People always want to like pick at logical issues in time travel stories, and, and this story has mythic logic, so it's pointless mm-hmm. to try to pick at it. But I couldn't help but think – why didn't they just wait a few more minutes with Brahma and maybe like listen to another song and then they could pop out at a better time on Earth? I don't know. <laughs> now, I, I love the idea that it involves um, listening to, to music, though, uh, because, yeah, it gets into this, like, because what happens when we listen, to, listen to, to music? You know, that's just one of the many human experiences that can alter our perception of time. You know, you get lost in a good song and... I don't know, sometimes that good song doesn't seem to last long enough. you got to put it on repeat and listen to it about six times. Uh, <laughs> and in other cases, you know, you, you, it, it seems to stretch on uh, for a very long time, and you, you lose yourself in it. Um, and curiously enough, this pops up in another uh, tale. This is a Japanese fairy tale uh, of um, uh, Urashima Taro, uh, a tale about a fisherman who rescues a turtle and returns it to the dragon palace beneath the sea. Uh, while he's there returning said turtle, uh, he's entertained by the princess there as a reward. And, uh, you know, there's music and dancing. It's great. Uh, uh, and then he's sent home with a box that he's forbidden to open. And when he returns to his home village, he finds that a hundred years has passed. And when he opens the box that, again, he was forbidden to open, he immediately ages an entire century. Oh, no. Don't yeah. open the box, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if gods and goddesses and strange ladies under the ocean tell you not to open the box, don't open that box. You know, we're in the odd situation where I think we need to call this episode right here, uh, but there's a lot more we want to say about the, the history of, of thinking about time travel. And so mm-hmm. what I'm proposing is that on this subject, we sleep into the future uh, I, I don't think we're quite ready for the next episode of the show to be part two of this. So maybe this will be a, an open part one. And who knows when the hands of time will reach out and feed you the, the second entry. Yeah, just don't open any strange boxes in the meantime. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, yes, definitely look out for that. The next episode, uh, we have some, we may have, I think we are going to have some other episodes that have to occur before then, but we will be back to discuss this topic more. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can find all of them uh, trailing back through time in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we uh, have our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Mondays. We do a short form artifact on Wednesdays. On Friday, we do a little something called Weird House Cinema. That's when we set most serious concerns aside, and we just talk about uh, some sort of a strange film. And we have discussed time travel films, and not only time after time, but, uh, oh, well, what else did we get into? Um, uh, Trancers. Trancers is a hell of a time travel movie. Uh-huh. The Return of Jack Death. Yes. That's right. We did we did Trancers, too. Uh, oh, and then uh, on the weekends, we do a Vault episode. That's a rerun from the previous year. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.